want to make the world a better place, it starts right here between your own eyes and ears. It starts in your mind. Capitalism could not survive in a culture dominated by mysticism and altruism. The world is changing. The age of the consumer is over. Stand up for freedom, no matter what the cost. It can help to save your soul and maybe your country. Do you understand the forces shaping events in the world around you? Do you want to know the answers or just the issues? Do you know the secrets of prosperity economics? Live at FreeCapitalist.com across the nation, you're listening to the free capitalist himself, Rick Kerber. So welcome to Free Capitalist Radio. This is Rick Kerber. I'm the Free Capitalist. It's time to wake up and turn your brain on. We've got a great show planned for you today. We're going to talk about education and the liberty movement. We are having a little bit of technical difficulty as we get started, so I might take a short uh, pause here for just a second uh, uh, it, to, to capitalize on uh, some technology uh, advances to solve that problem. But if we don't solve the problems, we'll be great because we won't have any commercial breaks during the show today, and that means we can just go on and on and on and on. And uh, that'll be good. No ending to the show. Yeah, there'll be no ending to the show. We'll just keep going. How will I know when to stop? So uh, I want to welcome everybody who's participating uh, live on the FM broadcast and also people who are dialing into the show uh, at 435-414-1352. If you want to share that and have others dial in, they can listen or they could even chime in. They will need the pin 85582. And as always, we want to welcome our Periscope, kind of our backstage listeners at periscope.tv at Free Capitalist. So I want to welcome everybody. Uh, I see a lot of comments and whatnot coming up on Periscope. You all can comment there, and I'll try to catch those as uh, we go up and down on the screen. Uh, Also, you can type in your text message box on the right-hand side of the uh, Uber conference window if you go to the Uber conference link uh, on the web. And you can also, like I say, call into the show. We're happy to take your call, but you want to let me know, either via Periscope or Uber conference, that you want me to bring you on, because I am my own call screener today. Um, today's topic is education, and before we talk about education, I thought I'd just do a little recap of some of the online activity and some of the conversations going on. I want to invite everybody to participate in the official American Liberty Society discussion going on online. And the easiest way to do that is to go onto Facebook and uh, type in Official American Liberty, and that will bring up uh, an invitation to you to, um, let's see, what's the sound going on there. That'll bring up an invitation to you to go uh, and ask to join the group and then you can participate in the conversation there. Um, We have a lot of conversation going on there today on several topics. Uh, One of the topics is the words and language that we use in this cause. And I thought I'd address a couple things that came out of that conversation. I decided I'm going to republish and update uh, the Word and Language of the Revolution essay from the Free Capitalist Primer. So uh, stay tuned for that. That should be coming out on Medium uh, very shortly. And we'll also place links to that on Facebook and on the freecapitalist.com website. Um, one of the things that uh, the 
conversation spun around on, on Facebook recently is uh, a lesson that I teach called de facto demente and de jure, and, or de jure. And uh, there was a, a friend of ours named Connie posted a question, and he asked people to define uh, the terms de facto demente and de jure. And, and I thought I would just uh, take this opportunity to address those of you who not only listen to Free Capitalist Radio, but participate with us in the building of the American Liberty Society and the Free Capitalist Project and these kind of things. W one of the things I address in the essay of the words and language of the revolution is a quote from Ayn Rand that talks about the importance of a thinking person establishing the terms and the meaning of the terms that they use. Because we live in a day and a time where people are so anti-intellectual that they spend very little time appreciating definitions. And there was this conversation going on that was very much like uh, uh, kind of the Alice in Wonderland world that happens in the anti-intellectual sphere, anti sphere, where, you know, two people are talking about the same terms, but they're using different definitions. And, and a producer takes ownership for the words that they use and defines their terms. And a consumer thinks that the terms are given, just like, you know, institutions are given, just like power and money are given. And so a consumer just takes things and uh, uses them and assumes there's always a right answer. Uh, a producer wants to know the truth. And there's a difference between those two approaches, obviously. And in this case, you know, when I teach this lesson, it, it's quite frankly, it's an earth-shaking lesson, and it's a paradigm-shifting lesson about taking ownership and shifting paradigms and how you live on a day-to-day -day basis. And I use these uh, phrases, and I explain the background of these phrases, the Latin meaning of the phrases, why I use uh, the phrases, and... Um, that kind of thing. Sorry, I keep getting distracted by you guys' conversation there on Periscope. And and I use those phrases advisedly. And like any good producer, I, it, 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 I hmm, explain in advance uh, why I use those terms and what purpose they have. But you have a challenge then. If, you're, if you happen to be, no, it's great. I like the conversation. I just wish it was on topic related to what I was talking about. Then it wouldn't be so distracting. So I appreciate the feedback. Keep it going. Keep it coming. Um, but but here's the thing I want to warn you about. You know, if you start listening to, say, the 13 Principles Lectures, and you start reading the Free Capitalist Primer, and you're listening to Free Capitalist Radio, you're going to have to own how I use these words if you want to adopt them yourself. If you, if you find this valuable, if you find it useful, if you find it enlightening, if you find your mind uh, enlivened and awakening, and you find yourself more able... Uh, to understand and to advocate and to produce, then you have to make these words your own, and you have to take ownership for their use. And uh, you know, putting out a putting out a call to kind of the public and asking the public what a word means is is, is like, quite frankly, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> it's like a teenage girl dressing up real provocatively walking down the street in New York City. Nothing good is going to happen, okay? And uh, I, know, I know that metaphor is not a great metaphor, but it's the first thing that came into my mind. I don't know why a 19-year-old walking down the street in New York City popped in my mind, but uh, heaven forbid uh, it means anything more than what I said. Um, <laughs> sorry. The point of this is, um, you know, you got to take some ownership. And so what happened is Connie threw out this question, and he threw it out not just in our American Liberty Society discussion, but he spread the word last time effectively. I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe Mr. Best was walking down the street with a 19-year-old. Is that what he's talking about? I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Here, here's the issue, guys. Um, you know, you like Connie, what he did is he posted that question in multiple forums. Fine, free to do that. Um, but when you ask someone who hasn't been through the training, they're going to use the word differently. 
And uh, that's what happens in our world today, for example. example. Um, you know, the word capitalism, for example. You know, not everybody understands and uses the word capitalism the same way. And uh, so before you get into a debate about what the word capitalism means, it's good to define your terms, or else you're just going to be arguing at each other and not making any progress any which way. And, and so when you, when you receive some, some insight, whether you're reading a book from me or anybody else, or whether you obtain... You're in prosperity. I mean, it was, I, it's hard for me to get out of that prosperity place in my head, see, and into this Periscope place. You, you have to... Um, God... I don't know what it is. You're, you're out of Mountain Dew. <laughs> my my mind is not synced with my lips. <laughs> it's the spider on my ceiling. Uh, it means greed. Yeah, I know it means greed. Uh, you know, people who are unintellectual and, quite frankly, intellectually lazy, banter around... Um, without defining terms because then it's always the place that they can retreat to because they haven't revealed what their actual premise is and and so cowards and weak-minded people the last thing they ever think of is defining their terms because they don't want you to find them out they want to be able to take intellectual pot shots and then hide behind the illusion of what it is they quote unquote really meant and then what happens is if you beat them in an argument at the end they will say well that's not what i meant or or i've agreed with you all along well why are you arguing with me it was your fault and 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 so you know words and the meaning of words uh, is a real important thing to give some thought to. I invite you to read in the Free Capitalist Primer the words and language of the revolution, then read the updated version coming out soon. And it, it went real bad in this conversation online because um, this fellow who was a friend of Connie started chiming in on the common definitions of the words uh, de facto and de jure, and he couldn't find the phrase demente uh, in a quick Google search, you know, because that's what intellectuals do these days. You know, you go look for your words in Google, and if it's not there, it must not be true. That guy must have told me at least three times over the last 24 hours that my ideas of demente truth aren't valid because he couldn't find them on Google. And I just, just a note to, to you know, whoever might be listening. If, if your idea of intellectualism is if you can't find it on Google, it's not legitimate, um, well, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that, except for uh, you may want to take seriously the invitation to wake up and uh, turn your brain on a little bit. See, see, one of the things people want to do oftentimes, they want to know what the right answer is for a definition, for example. So what is the right, what does capitalism really mean? Well, just like how expensive or what is something worth? If I ask you how much is a Hershey bar worth, you'll say, of to whom and for what? And so it is the answer to the question of any definition. What does the word capitalism mean? Well, to whom and for what? In what context? And uh, context dropping is also another enemy of the freedom movement. Well, anyway, that's neither here nor there. But so what happened is this conversation. Uh, yeah, bar of silver. I saw that video. Uh so what happened to this conversation online is, you know, it became very personal and full of attacks and this kind of thing. And I, I that kind of thing happens for two reasons. It, it happens because people are unintellectual, and it also happens because people do what I call looking glass living, and they can't see past their own reflection, and they accuse other people around them of having the weaknesses that exist in their own heart and soul, and that creates a very frustrating situation. The way you get through that, and the primary way you avoid that in the first place, is to define your terms, and when you engage in a conversation, own it. I will tell you. I know on social media, 
sometimes it's fun to throw a question out there, but be careful if you throw a question out there that you're willing to own the consequence and take responsibility for forming the context and um, being an active participant in those conversations. So with that said, I do invite you to, to go on to the American Liberty Society and uh, go on to the American uh, Liberty Society discussion page on Facebook and join in those conversations, participate. I also appreciated some conversations there from uh, the Gordons. And uh, wasn't it, isn't the Gordon brothers, Ben Gordon and Alma Gordon and, and uh, all these guys, um, they uh, had a conversation going on there today about uh, sacrifice. And that's one of my favorite conversations. And I thought I'd chime in there. So I appreciate that, boys, for, for bringing up that conversation. I think you're creating some value for each other and, and for other people who read that. I invite everybody who's listening to go ahead and chime in in that conversation, too. So, um, I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm reading. Oh, yeah, Alma Gordon, right. Uh, okay, so with that said, uh, let's shift gears. And it's an appropriate introduction to the topic of the night, which is education in the liberty movement. And uh, I want to talk tonight about education and liberty movement. And, and like I said, we've got some technical difficulties, and I'm going to elect not to take a break. I'm just going to keep watching the time here, and uh, we'll just uh, go right through the commercial breaks. They might get added back in on the podcast version of the show, but uh, I, I hope you all will appreciate commercial-free radio today and commercial-free Periscope. So we're going to talk about education, and particularly education in the home and the different alternatives to public school or government school. And, and one of the things that I want to talk about as we introduce this co conversation is, um, hey, everybody. Um, uh, hey, everybody. I thought somebody say hi, y'all, in a neurolinguistic program. I was like, hey, I want to say hi to everybody, too. Uh, sorry, I'm old man trying to catch up with this Periscope technology. Um, the conversation about education, like when I go online, I see all these anti-common core groups, and I see these homeschool groups, and I see private education. A lot of private schools have their own discussion groups. And, and it's funny to me when people in the liberty movement uh, talk about education, how quickly they abandon principles, and how quickly they are uh, to jump right into the morass of socialism. And they don't even realize it. And yeah, I did use the word morass. You might have to look that one up. Um, the very first thing when we talk about education in the home is we have to have an understanding of what the home is. And as some of you have been listening to me for a while know, I'm very critical of kind of the layperson's view of home these days, that a home as an institution isn't something we understand anymore. What do I think about Common Core? You know what I think about Common Core. Um, it's the same thing I think about, about Common, about everything. That didn't make sense. Think, well, common Core is the same socialistic nonsense that the government pounds down us in all the different areas of uh, government control. Um, I, I, the problem isn't Common Core. Uh, the problem is government school. And the problem is a state-run educational establishment. Most people don't even understand. I mean, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, common sense. Um, sorry, Alma, you're trying to be funny uh, during the middle of the show. I'm not going to be able to respond to all those silly little things. Um, These guys, they're like, they're like, it's like walking down the road and people randomly coming up to you and poking you, you know, and you're like, what the, <laughs> what the world? Um, we talk about education, we need to back up and understand. Um, most people, again, like other things, they don't understand the words that they use. And so people want to know what's the best homeschool curriculum, what's the best private school, what's the best this, what's the best that, but they don't even stop 
and think first about what their objective is and what their goal is. And that's one of the big problems in, in the education of young people in modern society is we're education mad. We call everything education. And you go to a government school. Now, listen, I, let, let me just tell you a little bit about my background. Okay, I went to a public school that I now call government school. By the way, I was the first one to do that. I, I mean, there may have been others saying it, but 10 years ago, I started calling these government schools instead of public schools, and everybody thought that was such an offensive term. Now I hear it all the time in the liberty movement. I'm like, hey, better remember who started that. Um, just like uh, this dichotomy between capitalism and communism. Not many people uh, were using that dichotomy until Free Capitalist Radio came along 10 years ago. Anyway, my background is I went to government school. I had a pretty good experience in government school, uh, but after second or third grade, you don't learn much. And um, junior high was horrible. And the only reason I completed high school is because I was on the debate team. It was the only intellectual activity that I probably engaged in from about second grade till about my freshman year of college. And uh, the only reason I even stayed in school is you had to attend school to be eligible to compete on the debate team. But other than that, it was just nonsense because it was all this social hour, right? It was all social club, in-group, out-group psychology, which is what we're still dealing with today. So we talked about, I think it was Friday on the show or Saturday. And we call everything education, but, but very little of what goes on in these schools is education. Uh, and so the first thing you have to do when you say, well, what's the best form of education? What's the best way to educate my child? What's the best way to be educated myself? Is we'll get clear on what you mean by education. Just because it happens in a building called a school doesn't mean it's education. And just because the government pays for it or there's a textbook on it doesn't mean it's education. And uh, if, if we back up into the history of America, you know, none of the founders obviously went to government school. And uh, quite frankly, uh, in the era of the beginning of America, and a lot of people don't care about that, right? A lot of people don't care about the beginning uh, history of American education. And, and there was a big push for free education and for public education uh, in the founders' time. Uh, but, but let me be clear about what happened. In the 1800s, um, a politician from New England uh, got really wrapped up into socialism and the Marxist critique of what had happened here in America. And he went over and toured Europe, including Prussia, and he was enamored with the Prussian education system. And he came over here, his name was Horace Mann, and he came back over to America and spent the rest of his life lobbying to introduce the Prussian education model into the United States. Probably the single most powerful influence in uh, the government-based education in America from 1850 to 1870. And... Um, the, the thing about Horace Mann was, when, when he went over there and he saw the Prussian education system, he didn't come back and say, hey, you guys, we need to adopt the Prussian education system. Because let me tell you what the Prussian educational system was, is back in Prussia, uh, the political establishment was losing power. And the political establishment was very worried about the consequences of the erosion of its power. And so they came up with this idea that if you took the government's resources and you made education available, you could control the content. And if you compelled children to come into your school, in less than a generation, you could gain control and influence over the minds of those young people. And you could start having political loyalty uh, issues uh, if the parents were disloyal to the government and this kind of thing. And there's a lot more to that. Today's not going to be a dissertation on the history of public education. But the purpose of the Prussian model was political manipulation, primarily. It wasn't education. It wasn't, oh my God, I figured out the best way to teach our children reading, writing, and arithmetic. It was, here is a great strategic way to counter the political instability in our kingdom. So this is what happened in the United States. Remember, after the Civil War, there was also uh, 
a very serious worry in the United States about political instability. Necessarily so. We've just gone through a civil war. And we became very vulnerable to all the cries of education saying, well, the way we're going to prove we're civilized and the way we're going to prove that we're united and the way we're going to prove that we can be politically stable is we're going to implement free education at the government expense. And, and thus the public education movement took hold. And then at the turn of the century, the next person, the real prominent person to pick up Horace Mann's philosophy was John Dewey, who most people know is commonly called the father of modern education. And Dewey was a socialist. He was a humanist and a socialist who believed in state control, ownership, and ownership of the means of production and the means of distribution. Well, that might not matter to most of you. Okay, I get that. I understand. But there are serious philosophical implications, and ideas have consequences, my friends. And the ideas motivating government education for over a hundred years are not generally uh, aimed at successful education. Now, think about this for a minute. When America puts its mind to it, we can get things done. When the people of America, when free people decide to do something, we do amazing things. We invented automobiles, right? Um, well, I mean, we invented the uh, the modern process of the automobile industry, right? We invented everything from the automobile all the way through to the Internet. I mean, you think about the genius and the creativity and the economic power and the social power and the cultural power of America. How is it that even in 2015, after decades and decades and decades and decades of campaign promises and political promises and education reform and state education reform and charter schools and private schools and the spread of home schools, etc., American education is still dramatically, dramatically falling short of any reasonable goal. I mean, in the government schools, you have less than half of the children who enroll in kindergarten graduate in the 12th grade able to read at grade level. Less than 50%, which means more than 50% of the time we are failing our children. Well, but see, it's funny. We're not just throwing money at it. We are throwing money at it because the average taxpayer is hoping, like, yeah, okay, I'll approve this tax increase because I will, uh, you know, I really want teachers to have more money and I really want my kids to have good textbooks and I really want there to be technology in the schools and I really want new school buildings and, and it's this hope, you know, so the taxpayers are quote unquote throwing money. But there is no mystery about why education is so expensive. The only people who have a mystery, who see a mystery about why education is so darn expensive and yet so ineffective are the dupes. Okay, it's it's like you know the old saying. If you're sitting around a poker table, and you wonder who the patsy is, if you wonder who the person is at the poker table who is the weak link, right, the numbskull that everybody's playing, right. If you don't know who it is after about two or three minutes, it's you. It's you. Okay. If you don't understand what's going on with education funding in the United States and in state governments, it's not because it's a mystery. It's because if you understood it, you would not tolerate it. It is horribly deceptive what's going on. And uh, again, let me back up and explain something to you about my background. So I went to government school. I went to public school. Then when I first went to college, my associate's degree is from Casper College, which is also a government school. And then for the first time in my life, I went to a private school when I went to the University of Denver. That's where I pursued my degree in public policy and religious studies, Real. Uh, I, I, real career-oriented degrees. And um, 
when I went to the University of Denver, it was the first time I went to a private school. And I hadn't thought a lot about uh, private education, public education, charter schools, homeschool, anything like that. I thought, when I was going through school, I thought homeschoolers were a little weird, you know, to be honest with you. And I thought private schools were expensive, right? I mean, I had bought into the narrative, right? I kind of had learned it through osmosis. And so the problem with that is, is, you know, I graduated public school without ever having read a book. Now, that's not to say everybody's like that, but it's to show that it was possible, you know, and man, I graduated high school a long time ago, right? I graduated high school in 1991. And so even back in 1991, it was not only possible, but it was easy to graduate high school without ever having read a book. So don't, don't get all dramatic on me about, you know, we're failing in education. We've been failing in education for a long time long time. And there are lots of exceptions because there are individual people, both in government schools and private schools and also parents in the homeschool environment. There are lots of individual people who care about education and in all those arenas fight like hell to try to make sure that these young people get an education. But the problem, it's, it's not just a lack of accountability, Alma. It's wickedness. The system is designed to fail on purpose. The system is designed to fund teachers' unions. The most powerful political force in about 60 to 70% of the states of the United States are teachers' unions. And if you look at the education battles, it's always the teachers' unions. It's not like the student unions, you know. It's nobody's advocating for the students. And uh, I saw somebody recently posted a, a video on Facebook of John Stossel's Stupid in America uh, report from several years ago. highly recommend you Google that. That's very good. Um, well, wouldn't that be pretty much the same thing to pass the buck? No, because you're, act, you're acting as if somehow, you know, the machine's broken. The, the educational machine is not broken. It's doing exactly what, it's it, doing exactly what it was designed to do. You're broken. The people who are still grappling in the grappling in the dark, wondering what should we do to fix it. More money, more money. You're feeding the machine that's doing exactly what it's supposed to do, and it's going to keep manufacturing the problems that you're all upset about. Because so long as they keep manufacturing those problems, you will keep lending your support and your strength to it. And a new generation of parents every year sends their children into this system, and the game is like a football game. You already know what's going to happen. I mean, you don't necessarily know which side's going to win, but you know the NFL's going to win, okay? In the education system, you know, the parents give a little here, and the teachers give a little here, but overall, the teachers' unions win. There's a reason for that. Now, the purpose of today's call isn't that, but that's some context for you. Um, I want to talk very seriously about parents and what parents do when they start to wake up in the cause of liberty and they want to focus on educating their children. And the very first thing you've got to do is, is throw aside all that rhetoric and you've got to throw aside all the talk of education. Quit worrying about schools and textbooks and curriculums and degrees and jobs. Leave all that for a few minutes later. You've got to think for a few minutes first. And now that's a new experience for, I mean, not you, but your sister. Um, and the first thing you have to think about is what is it that you really want? If you're an adult and you have children, what if you want, what is it that you really want for your children? What is education? You see, in the worldwide liberty movement, throughout the history of mankind, the liberty movement is founded on 
true education. And if you want to destroy the liberty movement, you destroy the foundation of true education. And when I say true education, generally in free societies, true education is called a liberal education or a liberty education. Liberal. Liberal arts. Okay, Liber. The Latin word uh, has reference to the freedom of the human soul. Okay? To be a free man or to be a free woman, to build a free society, we have to have a liberal education, meaning human beings need to be educated liberally. Now, that doesn't mean politically liberal. Okay, That term got corrupted over the last 90 years on purpose. That's a whole other story. But a liberal education generally meant an education that enabled a human being... One, okay, some of you remember the conversation we've had in the last couple of weeks about what a household is and what a family is and what a young person is who's growing up in that home. And when that young person grows up to go out on their own and become a free person, when that young person is about to step out of their parents' household and go out on their own, the goals of a liberal education was to make sure that that person was a positive, informed, healthy contributor to free society. And so then the question was, well, what does it take to make a young person or to bring a young person to that point of being a free man or a free woman, to, to be liberally educated? And there are three basic components to that. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But if you want to take some notes, there are three basic components to a liberal education. There are lots of appendages. There's lots of tra roads to travel down. But there are three basic things that you've got to have. And, and you can almost tell what they are by looking at modern-day government schools and just observing what they don't do. That's almost how you can tell what they are. Uh, nope, teaching them how to think is not one of them. <laughs> they do need to learn how to think. But learning how to think is a consequence of these three things. Without these three things, you cannot think. You can just feel. You can just emote. And that's what we've got, is we've got a society of people who just feel, who just emote, can't control their emotions. Nope, can't teach critical thinking without these three things. You can't get there first. You have to do these three things first. That's, these three things are how you get to critical thinking. Yep. See, by the time you're an adult, the goal is that you're a critical thinker, right? That, that you've broken past these barriers and these ignorances, okay? And that you're a free-thinking, free-acting human being. But you have to get there. You have to get there. Yeah, Mr. Best, you're not as uh, uh, questionable as you look. <laughs> um, but we're going to talk about that. But let me back up and tell you about the rest of my education experience so you understand where I'm coming from. So after I was done at the University of Denver, um, I came back home to Casper and I taught for a while at Casper College. And uh, when I joined the faculty there at Casper College, it's funny, I wasn't a full-time faculty, I was just adjunct faculty, and I just taught speech and debate because my background was speech and debate. I'd won the national debate tournament uh, when we went to the Firepie National Debate Tournament twice, 
and uh, I've gone to school at the University of Denver on a debate scholarship. That's how I graduated high school, like I mentioned. So that was kind of my focus. But as I started to participate, I started to realize how funny it was that even just as an adjunct faculty, just teaching speech and debate, how much social nonsense I was getting roped into as a member of the faculty. And I started to see what was going on at this university in the staff meetings. It was called, sorry, at the, in the staff meetings, the department meetings, and all the requirements. And I was literally spending half my time doing things unrelated to what it was I was I thought I was supposed to be doing in the classroom and this is colleges which is way way less broken than the elementary and secondary education system in the United States so after that um, I also or, or contemporaneous with that around the same time I started to teach I, I got a job teaching at a local high school um, so I was hired by Natrona County High School in Casper, Wyoming, and I started to teach in the language arts department there, and the same thing. But it was weird, right, because I hadn't been out of high school all that long. I mean, you know, I, well, I'd been out of high school maybe five years or something, six years, and it was so weird. School was so different than when I was in school, but it had progressed so much more towards what we see as this socialist nightmare today. And, um, I mean, I remember going to the bathroom one time, and I saw that they'd ripped out all the bathroom stalls, and they'd ripped out all the mirrors, and I thought some kids had done it or some vandals had done it, and I went and talk to the janitors, elementary and secondary aren't broken? <laughs> Jeff, you must be on crack. <laughs> well, I don't know what your question is, but uh, I'm happy to address whatever it is you think. Well, yeah, they're doing what they're designed to do. They're broken from the perspective of what we want them to do or what a free society wants them to do. That's right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> now, you're quoting me back to me. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I went back to the principal and to the custodians and I started looking why 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 are these bathrooms like this and they said well we had to take those yeah I know that's what I said stop it <laughs> but I said it in the context earlier in a different part of the conversation so I'm going to start ignoring you guys um, I was surprised at the principal's answer he said we had to take these um, bathroom stalls out and these mirrors out because the kids were just destroying them and I started thinking, well, who would use these bathrooms? And he said also they were doing drugs in the bathroom, and they were hiding in the stalls. And so we got rid of the stalls so they couldn't hide in the stalls. And I was like, oh, genius. I mean, what are you talking about? And uh, what was also weird is so I also was coaching the debate team at the high school. And it was very surprising to me because to be on the debate team, it was a competitive program. And I had after-school programs for the team to come and work. And, and I couldn't believe the great majority of the parents who threw a fit that we were having um, speech and debate meetings after school. And uh, they were very upset. And I thought maybe they were upset because of the time it was taken away from the family. So I was kind of sensitive to that. Being a Mormon guy, I thought, you know, I don't want to interfere with your family life and this kind of thing. But, you know, it's funny. Whenever the parents would come and talk to me, they didn't ever come and talk to me about, hey, you're taking time away from our family. That wasn't their complaint. You know what their complaint was? No. Their complaint was, you can't tell me that my kid's not as smart as the other kids on the team. So when you have these practices, and I did like these rankings, like, you know, where you stood on the uh, debate roster in terms of, you know, how good you were. And these parents were coming to me, you can't tell my kid that he's not as good at another as another kid. Sure I can. And I said, well, first of all, I can. I did. But they're saying it's not right to do that. I said, well, hold on. I'm not saying your child is worth less than the other child. I'm not saying your child is going to get less education in school than the other child. I'm saying as applied to this subject in this competitive environment, just like if we were golfers, I would rank them by who's the better golfer and the other golfer. And these parents had a 
fit. I mean, they went to the principal. They went to my uh, advisor. I had a, a mentor because I was a new public school teacher. I had a, you know, a watcher, basically. And they just wouldn't have it that I was getting in their heads. And so then um, the next complaint was I was teaching them how to debate. Okay, and 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 what somebody said on here earlier, you need to teach kids how to think. These kids did not know how to think, and so one of the ways, if you're going to learn how to debate, you got to learn how to think. But you can't just start learning how to think. You got to back up and do some rudiments, and you got to do these three things. And these parents were abu you know, were I was going to say abusing me. They were abusive in their language towards me because I was going back and teaching these high school kids the three basic things that you would teach a five year old, and they were well, this is wasting our time. I said, well, then don't come. <laughs> and they said, well, but if we don't come, then my kid can't compete. And I'm like, yep, that's right, because I'm the coach, and I get to decide who's going to compete. So we have to come. So since we have to come, we're going to tell you what you have to teach. Well, that didn't suffice it to say this didn't last very long. I quit. I said, oh, enough of that. I John Galted, right? I said, goodbye. <laughs> See you later. And um, shortly after that, um, several years after that, I started to to read and study a little bit about what's going on and my eyes started to open up a little bit more and I started to associate with people like Dr. Kimber and Glenn, Glenn Kimber who does a private LDS based education has been doing that for some time. I started conversing with people like uh, my friend and uh, mentor uh, Dr. W. Cleon Skousen and I wanted to know more about this and as my eyes started to open up to what was really going on politically I started to realize what schools had become and 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 because the schools had become that we begin our discussion of education, especially those of us who've been through the government education system, we begin our discussion of what is a good education from a faulty premise, and we use the wrong measuring sticks. In other words, you know, the, the, the people who don't like homeschool and don't like private school and don't like liberal arts education, they won't often, the real powerful ones, won't come out and tell you, well, we're against you. They'll say, oh, we're all for you. Just use our ruler. Just use our so you can you can homeschool you can private school you can charter school you can do whatever you wanted any alternative is fine you're just going to use our measuring stick because as long as you use our measuring stick that gives us the ability to tell you whether you're measuring up and that's one of the things Common Core is all about Common Core is not about having a common standard to test children so that we can see how well America is doing in the global competitive scale of education or how well America is doing at lifting their children up we know. We, already, we don't need these tests to know how poorly we're doing. We already know how poorly we're doing. The purpose of Common Core is to have a common ruler so that with all these advances and innovations in education, the state and the political establishment that supports the state, read teachers' unions and related political organizations, can continue to accomplish their objectives using the children to be the next generation of people who are s s continuing the incessant slide towards progressive socialism in the United States. Now, you don't have to believe that. I don't care if you believe it. I'm telling it to you. I, I believe it. Yeah, I think you'll find it out for yourself. But let me show you what we can do with all that information. And whether you believe it or not, I think you're going to agree with this. And that is this. There are three things that a young person, to grow into adulthood, um, must learn as fundamentals or as foundations. Okay, The first thing by nature, that a young person starts to learn. Think about this from a, a perspective of a parent. If you have a child, what is the first thing? Kimball, you've got some children. Yeah. How, how many? you got two kids. Two kids. Yeah, Rin and Tommy, right? Now everybody knows. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, I mean, if they've been on Facebook, they've seen those. Um, yeah, They mimic. I know you've heard me even teach that before, but what's the first thing they learn? What's the first thing a child learns? 
how to crawl, how to walk? No, no, long before Ren and Tommy walked. Long before they walked. What did they learn? How to get our attention. How to communicate. The very first thing a child has to learn is how to communicate. And children learn this naturally. You don't ever, by the way, you don't ever teach them. You, you notice when you go to learn a foreign language and the teacher sits down and starts teaching you, you know, here are the verbs and here are the conjugations and here's how to put them to work, etc. That never works, right? It's very difficult. We now know it's been plenty of time. We know immersion works tons best. And children, because they're immersed in your life, no matter what, you know, it's funny, no matter what language you speak, they learn how to communicate with you. Sure. And how do they do that? Trial and error. They learn by trying things and learning what works and doesn't work. So there has to be consequences to their actions. Okay? So the first thing that they have to learn is communication. The second thing that they have to learn is what are the consequences for their actions. They have to, so they have to learn how to communicate, and then they have to learn if, if they're consequences. And you know immediately if there's a problem with a child. For example, if a child is having a disability that they, that's impairing their ability to communicate, if the child is deaf, or if the child has difficulty, is blind, has difficulty seeing, then they, they have a difficult time learning. Now, it's interesting. It doesn't mean they don't learn. It just means they have a difficult time learning in ways that we would expect them to learn. I've seen amazing, I saw a video not long ago about this kid that was blind, and he could do the most amazing things. He was like Daredevil in the comic strip. I mean, he could walk down the street, and by making a noise with his mouth like that. a dolphin, he could avoid objects and tell you what they were. Incredible. The human mind is incredible. It's not just children that are incredible, though they are. And I love the sentiment of every child is precious. I believe that children are our future. Yes, yes, I, I believe that. I believe that. And I believe the, the, the current political controversy about the Mormon church. I believe all children are special. That's true. But it's not just that they're children that makes them special. That innocence is special of children. But the potential of the human being is incredible. And the human being comes wired naturally to learn. You don't have to sit there and say, okay, little baby, here are the nouns, here are the verbs, here are the... That baby has a natural faculty, generally speaking. There are exceptions, but, but by nature, human beings are going to want to observe, feel, hear, and then they assimilate that, and they communicate back, and they respond. So they don't actually cognize yet what words mean. They just know, for example, if I scream really loud or make this really loud sound, generally that big adult person is going to come back over here. <laughs> sure. And 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 if you if parents who are very good at this and teach their children with reliability, then the child learns consequences and learns what those consequences are. And those consequences, as an adult, those consequences have to be rational. So the very first thing that distinguishes between a good parent and a bad parent when it comes to education is a parent who acts rationally in response to their child's communication and their child's interaction is helping that child tremendously. But the parent who acts irrationally is starting to raise that child to be overly emotional because the child gets frustrated because the child is not able to understand, wait a minute, last time I did this, this happened. This time I did this, something different happened. And so the worse we get at being able to raise our children, that's why we have people wondering, why do we have more ADHD? Why do we have more ADD? 
Why do we have shorter attention spans? It is not the internet, my friends. I, you watch. The studies will bear this out. It's not modern technology. It's because as we get more and more addicted to paternalism, parents don't know how to act based on principle and act based on reason, and children don't trust their parents. It's, it's subconscious. It's not conscious. It's just subconscious. They're like, that thing there doesn't react predictably. And children have a filter for that. They don't. Matter of fact, if you don't believe me, watch a child who lives in your home and, and understands a certain pattern of things, and then they go into somebody else's home where maybe the, that home operates differently, and they will tell you immediately they observe a difference. And, and they will also know when something's wrong. For example, in my home, uh, one of the things we've taught our children for a long, long time is um, private property. We teach them private property from the time we're small. Uh, well, that could be the one-size-fits-all. You, you don't listen enough, Alma. You've got to listen longer and talk less. I know you're thinking, but, but I'm, 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 I'm taking you on a journey from a certain point to another point. So just just hold on a minute. Just, just observe for a second, okay? <laughs> uh, so we teach private property. And my child goes to one of our friends' house, and their same-age child comes up to my child and grabs their car out of their hand and runs off with it. And my child's like, hell no, that's not going to excuse the lab. But, uh, you know, my child's like, hey, that's wrong, right? Now, just, not just my child. I'm sure your child does the same thing. Because a child starts to go, wait a minute, I understand rationally that's mine. And it's not okay for you to come up. That's how they learn basic principles and certain laws of nature. And most parents are very good at this. Um, mo some parents are bad at it. The parents who are addicted to substances and stuff get bad at it because the substance abuse causes you to be irrational. But most human beings realize the efficiency of being rational. Now, the third thing is what we call idea formation or cognition. Okay? And cognition is when you teach a child how to properly identify ideas so that they can go from the concretes like car, book, tree, house to justice, fairness, beauty, happiness, peace. And we live in a day and time where most adults have difficulty going from the concretes to the abstractions. Most adults have difficulty climbing that abstraction ladder. Why? Well, because in those first two steps, they're missing a tremendous amount of necessary education. And it's been it's been corrupted politically on purpose. I have recommended in the past uh, a book that I will show you again. I know it's probably going to look backwards on your screen, so you might have to uh, you know, take a minute and challenge yourself to read this. This is a book by Ayn Rand called Return to the Primitive. And in this book, she has an essay called The Comprachicos. Anyone seriously... Oh, it's just backwards for me? You can see it straight up. Okay, good. It was only challenging my mind. Very good. Um, in this essay, um, she paints a powerful picture of what was happening to the philosophy of education 50 years ago. And it's even more powerful now. So to anyone who is seriously interested in education and the liberty movement, I highly, highly recommend, if you don't read anything else in this book, although I recommend the whole book, I recommend the essay called The Comprachicos. And she explains that in this communication and in these consequences, one of the things that you, you understand is a child must learn how to speak 
And a child must learn how to read. And a child must learn how to write. Okay. Those three skills, and that's what they are, they're skills. Because there are children who don't speak, but they still cognize. There are children, I have friends who, whose children didn't speak for years and years and years, but they listened and they understood. Um, so the skill of speaking is a powerful device to help the child in their communication. It's not the only way to communicate. Very powerful way to communicate. And in learning what consequences are. Because a speaking is a more efficient way to figure out what consequences are going to be. That's called asking questions. A child learns how to ask questions to get a response. That's why children don't stop. When they get to be about two, you get mad at them. But the reason they're going, hey, why, 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 what, 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 what? what's that, what's that, what's that, what's that, what's that, is because they're trying to get a response from you. And that's a more effective way of getting a response from you than crying or sulking or emoting. And they learn that very young. And so if you shut up a child and you discourage them from asking questions, what you're telling them is go back to being emotional. And if you only respond to their emotions and you don't respond to their cognitive asking of questions, you're failing number two because you're not teaching them consequences. If you wonder why in your family life you're always dealing with emotional consequences instead of intellectual consequences, I highly recommend you think about how you're communicating and whether you're communicating deliberately. Because what happens is if you don't take ownership for your communication deliberately, your vocalizations, your speaking Okay? Then the only other way to communicate, I mean asterisks, but the only other dominant way to communicate is to emote. And you'll find that in adult relationships and especially adult children relationships where there's so much that's unspoken. And it's the mystery, like, oh, what did I do today? And, and children feel that way, adults feel that way. And, and the way to start making huge progress in that arena is to start taking ownership for the words you speak and for how you speak and to start practicing speaking. You know, they say well, one of the number one fears of Americans is public speaking. Why? Because in private, we can speak like crap and manage the emotional consequence. But in public, there's not time to deal with a large group of people's emotions. The only way to deal with large groups of people's emotions is to speak. By the way, that's why the Supreme Court of the United States issues written decisions. It's why the Constitution of the United States was brilliant, because by having a written Constitution, by the way, writing is a form of permanently speaking. So before you learn how to write, generally you learn how to speak. Okay, Now they work together as you develop, but, but first... Uh, easier said than done. Emotions are intense. I know emotions are intense. But the way to get your emotions into check is to do a lot more speaking and a lot more writing. And some of you know this because some of you know that sometimes you can write your thoughts and your feelings down and you feel better because you've got it out of you. Because what's really happening, you're not getting it out of you. What's really happening is you're rewarding your cognitive mind. You're letting your mind grapple with what's happening in your breast, in your feelings, when you're sad or when you're angry, it's not immediately apparent why sometimes, or even if it's why, what are you going to do about it? And, and a lot of people want to talk about it, and they want to talk it to death, and that's great. That's why sometimes you need a friend to talk to and this kind of thing. But when you write it down, remember that's permanent speaking. And when you write it down, what happens is there's a whole different mental process so that you're strengthening the ability of the mind to say things that you really mean. So one of the things, the brilliant things about texting, now, you, you know, conservatives have this wrong, by the way. Conservative Christians, conservative Mormons, they get this so wrong because they're so afraid of technology. Um, texting is a tremendously powerful intellectual device. 
It's better than whispering and talking for most children because it's helping them get their ideas and expressing them in written form. The biggest mistake is to stop at texting. Texting is amazing because it's reducing ideas to the concrete into the written form. But if it's becoming a substitute for speaking, then you're putting the second step before the first step and children are, are learning how to bypass speaking. That's why they can't talk on the telephone. It's why they can't talk to you face to face. And by the way, it's why children loathe and grow up loathing public speaking. Okay, Because you can text to a friend and you develop your own language and you know what the BRB and the OMG means and your little group of friends has little initials that you guys like, etc. Yes, I understand concept formation. You're way, way, way further down the path. I'm talking to a very broad audience here. And uh, <laughs> when I start talking about epistemology, um, that would be kind of 202 of this conversation. But you're exactly right, whoever made that comment. You're exactly right. Was it uh, Anyway, so, so speaking and writing is essential. Now... The third ingredient is reading. The most important, and, and, then, and then, by the way, after that is listening. I don't know if you remember in school, if you ever had to take dictation. Did you ever have to take dictation, Kimball? I don't recall taking it. People don't do it nowadays. I mean, it's almost unheard of. But the reason dictation is important is not because of the, the technical skill or the mastery of the proficiency, but there's a very powerful lesson in teaching people about their own mind. When you have to listen and then write what's said exactly word for word, it's like looking in the mirror. And most of you have really fuzzy, squirrely, crazy house intellectual mirrors. So what happens is you might take notes, and here's a test for you. Next time you listen to Free Capitalist Radio, take notes. And your notes look like a crazy house mirror. You write down half sentences and half phrases, and you draw little images, and in the future you go back and look at that, and it's, it's a reference to a crazy house mirror. It's a distortion. It reminds you of the experience. It might even bring to mind a few ideas. But the better you get at being able to describe in written words what you're hearing, the more refined your ideas become. Yeah, I know you do it when you want to quote someone, but you only have to, the video or the audio. You know, it's a lost art. I, I have an ancestor, actually it's my first wife's ancestor, who learned literally how to dictate at the speed of human speech. And he would sit in an audience and he would listen and he would take verbatim notes. And I thought that was so unusual. But did you know, from the 1880s to about 1910, that was considered a basic skill? <laughs> That was the ability to listen to it. Remember, they didn't have tape recordings. The ability to listen to a lecture and to take notes to be able to regurgitate with accuracy. It's not like the current school system where it's a test to just regurgitate facts. That's absurd. Regurgitating facts isn't the point. It's regurgitating what you heard, whether it's right or wrong, by the way. Whether it's right or wrong. Now, it's better to do what's right. No question about it. But the power is in taking the mind from the abstraction of a sound to the pro mental process of identifying those sounds and then writing them down in the form of symbols. It aids in a skill that we call concept formation. Concept formation affects your life every day. Now, I know we're running a little late because there's no commercial breaks. I'm just going to keep going. If you don't want to listen, just check out. Here's what I mean. So, so, so remember I said there were three things. Uh, communication, learning consequences, and then uh, developing our ideas for cognition. And that's where I'm at now. Where'd my pen go? 
I, I tell a story. I tell a story about, um, and, and and they're better stories. But the, the story that uh, is very useful in this is, it's a it's a fictional story. But I want you to think this through for a minute. So so, a boy, and his dad, go out for a Saturday drive. And the boy's fifteen, and he's learning how to drive. And so the dad's in the passenger seat, and the the boy is in the driver's seat. And they're driving down a backcountry road. They come to a four-way stop. The boy doesn't stop, or excuse me, a two-way stop. The boy doesn't stop, and the constant traffic the other way comes and T-bones the car and kills the dad on impact. It impacts the passenger side of the car, kills the dad on impact. The boy's still alive, but he's critically hurt. The ambulance comes, says, the dad's dead, let's save the boy. They get the boy, they put him in the ambulance, and the ambulance workers work on him all the way to the hospital. They call in and say, we've got this boy who's been dramatically injured. His father has been killed. Um, get ready. And so when the ambulance gets to the hospital, the emergency doors open, and out comes the emergency team and the um, paramedics and the ER workers, or excuse me, the ambulance workers, hand off this boy on a stretcher to the emergency room team. And as they're wheeling him into the hospital, the leader of the emergency room team, the main emergency room doctor, takes a look at the boy and has a stunned look and says, Oh no, I can't operate on this boy. He's my son. Now, I used to tell that story in very large groups, and, and people would get a very puzzled look on their face. About half the people, a little bit more, would, would think there was a problem. And I'd say, well, what's the problem? And about half the people would say, well, how could it be the emergency room doctor's son because the boy's dad was killed in the car accident? And there are lots of possible explanations. Yes, I, that, that is an example. It's not, by, by the way, it, intellectually lazy and polit politically manipulated people use an example like that to accuse people of sexism. It's not sexism. It's poor concept formation that make people vulnerable to sexism, racism, socialism, and all the other bad ideas. It's intellectual weakness. And so what happens is, uh, for, for a large majority of the population, the concept of doctor is a very limited concept. Uh, it can't be sexism, Alma. You're, you're, you're skipping a step. It absolutely... He, he previously said, I don't agree with that, that it is sexism. He's agreeing with Yeah, it, it isn't sexism, yeah. Because you, it's a subconscious problem. You don't know you have this problem. Sometimes people call it latent racism or latent sexism or disparate racism or disparate sexism, but it's not any of that. It's it's an intellectual disease. It's an intellectual illness, okay? Because it's an it's a malformed concept where if doctor, for example, if doctor in your mind looks like a white guy um in a white jacket with a stethoscope around his neck, then when the dad dies, who is going to fill this concept in your mind of the male doctor? And so, I, now here's a funny thing. So, so what happens, well, paradigms are the result of concepts, but they're not the same as concepts. Um, you can have a paradigm shift when your concepts get corrected because it's like correcting your vision with eyeglasses, but it's not the same. The I'm talking basics here. I'm talking basics. You've got to get the basics right or else you're going to keep voting for, for you know, politicians who lie to you about education. And so, and you're going to be poorly educated your whole life and not even know it. My buddy Bernie Sanders. 
education. Yeah, so free education is, is the one thing that's free is not education. And so, so going back to this bad concept formation, so I will say to a seminar group, what's the problem with that? And they'll say, well, the guy's dad was dead. And I said, well, then what if the statement's true? The emergency room doctor accurately is identifying this boy on the stretcher and accurately says, I can't operate on this boy. He's my son. And inevitably, there's about 10% of the honest school, well, maybe it's his stepdad. Right. Because now that, that deals with a different concept of family. Okay, because we're talking about the word son. So if you have a broader concept of the word family, you say, oh, well, it might not be his dad. It might be his stepdad. Yeah. And then I will say, well, what if it was his mother? Right. What if it was his stepmother? Right. What if it was his polygamous stepmother? Right. What if, I mean, our concepts are so rigid because we haven't intellectually owned them. We've just absorbed them. We've just absorbed them from the people around us, and our concept formation is stilted because we're not exposed to a broad base of ideas. And so if you go back to this communication where you're speaking and you're reading and you're writing and you're listening, the more of that that you do, the more you develop the skill in your mind. So the sooner you can have a young person doing those four things on a daily basis, the sooner that young person's mind is going to feel the power of, quote-unquote, education. Okay. Now, asterisk, what about you? If you want to increase your level of education, if you want to increase your level of power and effectiveness, speak, read, write, and listen. If you're doing those things every day, that's the medicine to start to recover from your malformed concepts. Okay, And when you do that, you start to realize, wait a minute, you start to get smarter very quickly than almost everyone around you because the concepts in your mind start to get more refined and your mind starts to get more reflexive and you can connect dots very quickly and you see how slow people are to really grapple with ideas around you because they haven't developed these skills. And so if you want to talk about education, let's start at the very, very basics. Yes, of course, deliberately expose yourself to ideas, whether you agree with them or disagree with them. You're not smart enough for your agreement or disagreement to matter in most instances. You're just emoting. Most people think, I don't like that. Why? Because it doesn't feel right. But well, we live in a day and age where that mantra is so much BS. I'll tell that didn't feel right to me. That didn't feel right to me. That didn't feel right to me. I don't like that. That's just not my truth. Trust yeah, me, sh <laughs> Shut up. Shut your brain is dead. Let's pour some water on it. Put some fertilizer on it. And when you start to wake up, now let's have a conversation. right? Because your ideas are meaningless and worthless if you haven't worked on obtaining them. Think about that for a minute. If your ideas aren't yours, you're just absorbing them from someone else, and that's how you learn how to be a moocher. And so your opinion means nothing if you're just spouting off the emotional response that you learned from the people around you, and you don't even know what your ideas are. And here's how you know whether you know what your ideas are. Write them down. Speak them. Communicate them. Ha! Ah. That's why you don't like public speaking. That's why you haven't written a book. It's why you don't write a blog. And if you do write a blog, it's why you write on Facebook little two-paragraph or one-paragraph statements. Because it's all you can muster. It's all the horsepower you have in your head. Now, don't get me wrong. People are really good at this. They write the best one sentence and the best paragraphs that you've ever seen because they're very powerful intellectually. Volume isn't the key here, but learning is and the process is. Now, I want to I wanna go into this um, essay in the Comprachicos for just a minute. She says, learn to speak as a process of automating, 
automizing, uh, automatizing the use of concepts. And more, all learning involves a process of automatizing. I'm just going to say automating. First, acquiring knowledge by fully conscious, focused attention and observation, then of establishing mental connection, which makes that knowledge automatic. The process of forming, integrating, and using concepts is not an automatic, but a volitional process, i.e. a process which uses both new and automatized material, but which is directed volitionally. It is not an innate, but an acquired skill. It has to be learned. It is the most crucially important part of learning. And all of man's other capacities depend on how well or how badly he learns it. Now listen to this. Everybody wants to know about curriculum. And they always want to know about the content of the curriculum rather than the effectiveness and the approach or the technique of the curriculum. It's because they're not smart enough to evaluate curriculum, to be quite frankly. Because they need to focus, to be quite frankly, to be quite frank. They need to, uh, adults need to first commit themselves to this process of education. Iran goes on to say, this skill does not pertain to the particular content of a man's knowledge at any given age. Testing what a child knows at any given age does nothing to tell you with how well educated they are. But to the method by which he acquires and organizes knowledge. The method by which his mind deals with its content. See, Googling something gives you the fact and the content, but it doesn't give you the method. It doesn't tell you what to do with the fact, how to use the fact, what to say about it, what to think about it, what to write about it, how to persuade someone to come to your understanding, etc. The method programs his subconscious computer. Your, most people live as victims to their subconscious mind, because that's where feelings program you. And you never get into the conscious mind. But you see this process of learning to speak, learning to write, learning to listen, learning to um, communicate, this process is how you take ownership for programming your subconscious mind, and it's never too late. She goes on to say, does a child conclude that the world is intelligible and proceed to expand his understanding by the effort of conceptualizing on an ever wider scale with growing, with growing success and enjoyment? Or does he conclude that the world is a bewildering chaos where the facts he grasps today is reversed tomorrow, where the more he sees, the more helpless he becomes. And consequently, does he retreat into the cellar of his mind, locking its door? You see, you want to talk about these theater shooters and these school shooters? They all have something in common. We, talk, we call it mental illness. It's the same mental illness that socialists and collectivists and statists and paternalists have. They have poor concept formation, so... They retreat into the cellars of their mind. And the more you retreat into your mind, the less speaking, reading, writing, and listening you do, the more diseased your mind becomes. Generally speaking, there are exceptions. Asterisk. Does a child reach the stage of self-consciousness, i.e., does he grasp the distinction between consciousness and existence, between his mind and the outside world, which leads him to understand that the task of the first is to perceive the second, which leads to the development of his critical faculty and of control over his mental operations? Or does he instead remain in an indeterminate daze, 
never certain of whether he feels or perceives, of where one ends and the other begins, which leads him to feel trapped between two unintelligible states of flux, the chaos within him and the chaos without. This is what happened in the conversation that I had with uh, my friend Connie's friend about uh, the words I was using. This man felt like I insulted him because I was telling him the consequences of his ideas. And I say, a person who believes or thinks thus and so is led to the logical conclusion of believing thus and so. And this guy got so mad at me. He started calling me a bad man and calling all of you people who listen to me psychophants. And he started warning people in the LDS church that I was a false prophet and I should be warned away from, because he can't think. And the worst part about it is he can't tell the difference between his ideas and himself. You see, when I criticize your ideas or when you criticize my ideas, it's a challenge. It's a healthy challenge. It's like going to the gym. When the weights push down against you, it's not that gravity's mad at you. Okay? When I intellectually challenge you, it's not that I'm mad at you or I disrespect you or I'm insulting you. It's I'm engaging with you in the pursuit of truth and understanding. But see, we live in a society where you can't hardly engage with anyone because people are weak-minded, sensitive, politically correct fools. And they don't want to engage in the world of, of, of an exchange of ideas because they can't tell the difference between themselves and their ideas. And if you challenge them and they have to give up an idea because they see it's a bad idea or a futile idea or a limited idea or an ineffective idea, then they feel bad, futile, limited, and ineffective. So they just want to go smoke pot, drink beer, watch TV, numb it out, turn it off, and shoot you. Or hire the government to get rid of you. That's the consequence of not even understanding what education is in the first place. So before you start telling me about phonics, before you start telling me about Saxon math, before you start telling me about your religious curriculum, before you start telling me that we have to have religion in schools and we have to have morals in schools, and before you start telling me about group instruction versus individual instruction, before you start telling me about this pedagogy versus that pedagogy, before you start telling me about different paths to different epistemological realizations, before you start talking to me about whether the grade system or the age system works, or whether class work or government schools work your ideas mean nothing on those subjects you are failing yourself and your children if you don't begin at this level and quite frankly the average school teacher in public school private school and homeschool the reason they are failing the reason they feel bad about their life is not because they're bad teachers and the reason most mothers are scared to death when somebody who don't already have kind of this conversion to home education the reason most mothers well let me rephrase it the reason a lot of mothers come up with this response like i don't know what to do and I can't do it and I'm scared and I'm scared it's because they're not speaking reading writing or listening themselves and they're telling the truth they're going holy crap I can't do this okay well if you can't swim do you just avoid water your whole life are you gonna live in fear of drowning your whole life how long does it take to learn how to swim at most a couple days now I'm not saying to be excellent at swimming I'm saying to learn how to not drown you want to know how long it takes to learn how to not drown in education? A couple of days. Yeah. You know what? I, I challenge you right now. It's Monday. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. For the next four days, do some speaking for 10 minutes. Get a recorder. Talk in the mirror. Or talk to your children and record it. It doesn't count if nobody's listening. So a recorder mimics somebody listening, so you're going to be accountable, okay? Ten minutes, and then read. Ten minutes, and then write. Ten minutes straight. Time it. I mean, write. And by the way, 
Picking up a pen and sitting there and thinking for five minutes doesn't count as five towards the pen. I mean, write with your hand, okay, or type with your keyboard. It would be better, by the way, if you're, uh, side note, if you want to learn more powerfully, start with a pen and paper. Now, there's a reason for that, but we don't have time to talk about that. But typing's okay. okay? But type for 10 minutes, okay? And then listen for 10 minutes, but listen while you're taking notes and writing down to the best of your ability accurately every point that's made, everything that's said. First of all, you recognize how hard it is and how far behind you are. But you do that every day. That's 10, 20, 30. That's 40 minutes. You're going to spend more time on the toilet in the next four days than that. Well, maybe not you, but your brother. It takes 40 minutes. But learning takes as long as it takes until it becomes automatic or habitual. You cannot become automatic or habitual learner. You've got to be a student for your entire life. If you love liberty, you're constantly going to be learning. To become excellent in any topic requires thousands and thousands of hours. Okay, And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about not drowning. I'm talking about not drowning. Because right now, most people are drowning, which is why they're on antidepressants. It's why they're on sleeping pills. It's why they're angry. It's why their relationships suck. It's not because you need to go to the gym and punch somebody, though that's a good technique for a different reason. It's not that you need a motivational speaker to talk to every day, although that's a reason for something else. It's not that you need a coach or a mentor, though you definitely do. But until you're willing to do these things, you're just wasting time, effort, and money. So do an experiment. If you really took some value out of this radio show today, do this for four days and then take an inventory on what's happened. And let's talk about it. Send me a message. Email me, rickkerber at me.com. Or you can go to freecabels.com and send me a message. Or on Friday's show or Saturday's show, you can type me a message on Uber Conference. Let me just have a couple of final thoughts for you. <sighs> A small child is mildly curious about, but not greatly interested in, other children of his own age. In daily association, they merely bewilder him. He is not seeking equals, but cognitive superiors, people who know. So what do you do to a child when they come up to you and ask you questions and you send them off to play with their peers? That's what the government has formalized by law through compulsory education. You've taken that child away from the people who know things, and you force them to grapple with reality with other blind people who don't know things. Observe that young children prefer the company of older children or of adults, that they hero worship and try to emulate an older brother or sister. A child needs to reach a certain development, a sense of his own identity, before he can enjoy the company of his peers. But in a modern society, he is thrown into their midst and told to simply adjust. But adjust to what? To anything. To cruelty, to injustice, to blindness, to silliness, to pretentiousness, to snubs, to mockery, to treachery, to lies, to incomprehensible demands, to unwanted favors, to nagging affections, to unprovoked hostilities, and to the overwhelming, overpowering presence of whim as the ruler of everything. Want to become a better parent immediately? Learn how to recognize when you're acting on a whim with your children rather than on principle. How do you do that? Is there a reason for what you just did besides an emotional response? If your child comes up to you and asks you a question and you just emote on them, bad parent, you're hurting the child every time. Now, you're not going to be perfect. Don't feel guilty forever. Learn how to recognize it, though. That's a whim. 
oh, hey, randomly, we're going to change our routine today and go do something. Once in a while, that's fun because spontaneity, is there's a window for that. But as a general rule, children are looking to learn the rules of life. And as a parent, the best thing you can do is not act on whims, particularly emotional whims, but act based on reason. Children will learn to respect your reasons. So instead of saying, because I'm the mom and I said so, or because I'm the dad and I said so, learn how to speak the truth to them about why. And if it irritates you, pretend that you can hear my voice in your head saying, well, then you better do some more speaking, reading, writing, and listening. Because if you can't speak to your children, and you can't write to your children, then what good are you? A three-year-old delivered into the power of a pack of other three-year-olds is worse off than a fox delivered to a pack of hounds. The fox at least is free to run. The three-year-old is expected to court the hounds and seek their love while they tear him to pieces. After a while, he adjusts. He gets the nature of the game, wordlessly, by repetition, imitation, and emotional osmosis long before he can form the concepts to identify it. He learns not to question the supremacy of the pack. He discovers that such questions are taboo in some frightening, supernatural way. The answer is an incantation vibrating with the overtones of a damning indictment, suggesting that he is guilty of some innate, incorrigible evil. Don't be selfish. Thus he acquires self-doubt before he is fully aware of self. He learns that regardless of what he does, whether his action is right or wrong, honest or dishonest, sensible or senseless, if the pack disapproves, he is wrong, and his desire is frustrated. If the pack approves, then anything goes. Thus the embryo of his concept of morality shrivels before it is born. He learns that it is of no use starting any lengthy project of his own, such as building a castle out of boxes, because it will be taken over or destroyed by others. He learns that anything he wants must be grabbed today, since there's no way of telling what the pack will decide tomorrow. Thus his groping sense of time continuity of the future's reality is stunted, shrinking his awareness and concern to the range of the immediate moment. He is able and motivated to perceive the present. He is unable and unmotivated to retain the past or to project the future. Well... We could go on for a long time, my friends. But before we talk about education in terms of curriculum and books and approaches, that's Ayn Rand. That's the Comprachico's essay. I want to talk to you about homeschool. I want to talk to you about American Founders Academy and the program that Jewel and I put together. I want to talk, but you're not qualified if you're not doing at least these basic things. And uh, so we'll have part two of this conversation. But let's end the show today by let me ask you some questions. Thinking about education, what are the ideas that are most important to you that you would want your child to learn? Pick three. The ideas of life. If you're a religious person, you know, my son Marcus, he loves to talk about Jesus. He loves to talk about fighting the bad guys. Those are big deals in his world. That and Spider-Man, right? I want you to write down three real important things that you'd like to speak, three ideas you'd like to speak to your children. And during your 10 minutes, speak about those things. Read about those things. Write about those things. And then listen and dictate 
take dictation on those things. And see if you don't have a greater ability as a parent to act less based on whims. I had a good friend of me one time tell me the secret to good parenting is to learn how to be like gravity. Children don't learn to argue with gravity. They don't learn to whine about gravity. They learn that it's reality. And when they fall off a bicycle, they learn to either keep their balance or to go get a pair of knee pads, or both. But you wonder why your 16-year-old is still arguing with you, or your 25-year-old is still arguing with you, when they don't understand what they're talking about. Well, maybe neither do you. Maybe you feel something, but you don't know it. And the, 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 the interesting thing, and I will, I, will, I will end by saying this, feeling is not bad. Matter of fact, uh, Ayn Rand says that feeling is not a means of cognition that's true. But feelings can be an indicator, a gateway to ideas and a reminder of ideas. And we, we ought not to ignore our feelings, but we ought to master them and, and learn how to interpret our feelings like we learn how to interpret the sounds of a language. You ever say, i got a bad feeling, but I don't know why. Well, whose fault is that? What are, you, what are you teaching your children if you're teaching them only how to feel and only how to live by feeling? People elect presidents because they feel good when they hear certain things said, even if those things are nonsense. So there is a way to talk about reforming education. There is a way to make very powerful decisions right now for your children in school and what to do with them. But we start by putting first things first, and that's what I've tried to introduce you introduce to you here today on Free Campus Radio. Hey, I've uh, gone very uh, far over our normal time. I hope it was worth it to you. Give me some feedback. Uh, drop me a note. Uh, start a conversation on the official American Liberty Society discussion page. This is Rick Kerber. I am the Free Capitalist. Wake up, turn your brain on. Meet you back here, same time, same place, tomorrow.